Good morning. Um, today's reading is Leviticus 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Laws for burnt offerings. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Father, we are grateful for you and your mercy. As we begin our study of Leviticus and, and this focus on the holiness to which you've called us to, may we recognize that you are a holy God who's calling your people to be holy as well. May we celebrate that these laws for burnt offerings, these commands you've given us here on how to worship in Leviticus are for our good and your glory. So Father, as we study this book, would you reveal your truths to us? Would you allow us to see how we're to live in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name, that makes much of the name of Christ? Father, we're thankful for you, and we're thankful for things you're doing in our world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful you guys are joining us this morning, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, we are beginning our series in Leviticus this, this morning, and uh, well, as we get started, I want to take a moment and just offer a, a personal aside, a, a small measure of gratitude for the, the prayers, the, the thoughts, the outreach you guys have provided for my family and I. I am grateful for that. Uh, words fall short to express what those have meant to us in this time, so I'm grateful for all that you've done for us over the last few weeks. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I do want to make a note that uh, if uh, you are feeling led to give here with Holmes Avenue, whether you're here in person or online, uh, you're able to give uh, as you exit today with one of our deacons will be available to receive your tithes and offerings. If you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash give and you can give online as well. Uh, certainly if you're here, you can take advantage of that as well. Uh, whatever you're most comfortable with, we encourage you to pursue and to use. So as John read this morning, we are going to be in Leviticus chapter 1, and we're going to be landing primarily in verse 1 today, and uh, really we're going to do a more of a topical study of verse 1 and what's happening here within the confines of the book. We're trying to get, begin with a broad overview of what God is doing and what He's doing in the life of the church today. Now, as we went through our major sermon series last year, went through several book studies, uh, Philippians, uh, we had the book study of James, and then, of course, we finished with 1 Peter. And in those book studies, kind of the overarching theme that we could see through those books is that if we can connect the dots together, uh, last year that we found that we were able to have joy in the midst of suffering and trials through our citizenship in heaven that we are anchored in this eternal life, this eternal destiny we have in Christ. And because of that, as followers of God, we're able to have joy to, to not only just survive, but to grow and thrive in the midst of trials and suffering. Now, I would like to tell you that uh, Brian and I went into last year uh, not really envisioning the full width and breadth of what 2020 would have to offer. Uh, as we began with those books, we thought, these are really good books for us to hear. And then as we got into 2020, we said, wow, the Lord is so much smarter than us. These are really good books for us to hear from this year. And, and so as we continue in this year, we were beginning with the book of Leviticus. And I'll just kind of lay the cards on the table. The, the main point, the primary emphasis of the book of Leviticus is holiness. It is holiness. And in this book, we see God expressing His personal holiness and Him calling His people, that is the church, to be holy. Now, we are, of course, in 2021, and you might be sitting here and, and asking the question, well, Walter, that, that's good. That's a good thing for me to be concerned with as a Christian, this idea of holiness. But what does an Old Testament book have to teach me about holiness today? What does this book of laws and commands from God on how to worship have to teach me about holiness? Well, certainly as we look at this, uh, there'll be some instances where uh, as we think about things like uh, offerings and such, uh, we're not going to go sacrifice an oxen in the backyard tonight. I hope we're not, at least. Uh, if it is, it needs to be on your smoker. 
But we're not likely going to do that. And so the, the very the one-to-one practical of here's how we do this offering is not necessarily helpful, nor is that the point of this study. We know that these offerings, these sacrifices, many of these things have been fulfilled through Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Rather, what we're doing is we look at the book of Leviticus, the same commands of God calling His people to be holy and to live in a clear and distinct way from the world around them is still applicable today. You see, God was concerned about the actions of the people of Israel because He wanted them to be a distinct, unique citizenship in an unbelieving, pagan world. Not much has changed over the last few thousands of years, perhaps, and we recognize that we live in a world that is very similar in many ways. We live in a world that is as lost as can be. We live in a world that does not believe in the things of Christ, that says there is no such thing as truth. Live your life, do what you want. What's good for you is what's good for you, and you do what's good for yourself. And the fundamental truth of it is, as we study the scriptures today, that yes, these specific instances of how to perform these offerings are not applicable, correct? But the distinctive reasons behind why God would call us to live and act and behave in a certain way is still applicable. Because more than ever today, we need a church, a body of believers who are committed wholeheartedly to holiness in the Lord. Who live in a way that is distinctively different than those that are lost and far from God around them. We need a church that is committed to fighting for biblical truth. We need a church that is committed to personal holiness. We need a church that is desiring to see themselves grow and thrive in the Lord. And I'll tell you that that does not come by accident. You see, God understood some things about the human heart. After all, He did create us. He knows us intimately. And He recognizes that we won't come into holiness on accident. We won't stumble into it. That it requires an intentional, God-driven effort. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. This intentional, God-driven effort of the people of Israel to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which God has called them. And so that's why we're looking through the book of Leviticus over the next few months. That's why we're studying God's Word, because we believe that the full width and breadth of the Bible, Old Testament to New, has value and fruit. We believe that every word that God has spoken is applicable and beneficial for us. And we trust, we believe that the book of Leviticus will have much to say to us over the course of the next few months. And so with those in mind, we're going to begin with Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 again, just so you have some context. And we're going to go explore some broad themes from there that's happening in these verses. Verse 1 reads, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So verse 2 is in there just so you guys have some context of understanding where we're going. But verse 1 is going to barely contain the meat of what's happening here. And I'll tell you exactly what verse 1 is displaying for us. If I can put all my cards on the table, so to speak. God calls His people to holiness. God calls His people to holiness. If you're taking notes, write that down. You'll have our journals next week and you'll be able to write those down. Really, as we look at, we're looking at one verse, right? How much notes are you going to take, right? I've got stacks of them up here. You're in trouble today. But as we look at this, the, the fundamental truth of what we see here in verse 1 is that God causes people to holiness. And so I want to look at this part by part and just look at each of these aspects. And the first place that I want us to go is to look at this call of God. God calls out to us. You see, as we look through Scripture, we see that God begins His interaction with our world by speaking or by calling out. All you have to do is go to Genesis 1-1 and see that God speaks existence into the world. That we see that His Spirit's hovering above the waters and He speaks out and things begin to happen. That God announces His presence, His interaction with our world through Him calling out. And throughout history, we see that God initiates contact with His people through this gospel call. This call to faith and trust in Him. Really, as we look throughout biblical history, we see that God's calling His people to live and act in a certain way. And here in this book, we're seeing that He's continuing that call to live and act in a certain way. You see, we see the beginning of a call from God on how to live and worship. 
You see, God is speaking here to His covenant people on how they're to live as they're preparing to enter into the promised land, some context of where we're at. Uh, this is happening in conjunction with the last few verses of Exodus. And God's people are preparing to enter into the promised land. And we see here in these verses that He's laying out everything before them. This is making sure that they understand, here is who you're to be. And we know as we've studied the, the books, if you've, if you've read through uh, the Bible with us last year, if you remember the story of Exodus, God's people didn't quite understand who they were to be in all instances of their lives. We see many moments where they struggled with this idea of trusting and following in the Lord. We saw these moments of them struggling to live in a way that brought honor and glory to the Lord. And God is putting everything out in front of them saying, this is who you're to be particularly as you're about to inherit this promised land that I'm going to give you. You need to know who you're to be in this new land, in this new world. And so he calls these people to faith, ultimately in Jesus. He calls them to faith foremost in Jesus Christ. You see, what he's talking about here in these offerings, he's laying out, here's how you provide these offerings, these sacrifices. This is how you make a payment for the debt of the sin that you have. Here is how you pay for the crimes you've committed against me. Now we know on this side of history, as we look at the scriptures, we see Jesus has made that ultimate payment, that he's fulfilled all sacrifice, that he is the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. That you and I can just simply cry out mercy to God and say, forgive us, Lord. And we receive forgiveness through that shed blood of Jesus Christ. And here, ultimately, he is saying that these offerings, these things I'm putting before you, that these are to lead you to faith and trust in the Lord God Almighty. Now, as we see God speaking, he speaks that we might believe, and in believing, we might see the truth and power of not only the gospel, but also the realities of the law. If you would, we're going to look over at Romans chapter, 18 for, chapter 1, verse 18 for a moment. Uh, verse 18 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." You see, what Paul is articulating here in the book of Romans, what he's putting before us is this reality that the point of the law is to reveal our inability to live in a manner worthy of pleasing God without a mediator. You see, you and I, left to our own devices, will live in sin and shame, and we are separated by that sin from God. And here in the Old Testament, we see God is making a way for His people to be united with Him in holiness. He's saying, offer these sacrifices and you'll be found to be clean and holy. Offer these sacrifices and this is your way back into good standing with me. He's saying there is a mediation that needs to occur. A sacrifice, a debt must be paid for your debt. And he's saying these sacrifices are how you do it. Now we know on the New Testament side that that was paid through Jesus. And the truth of it, as we look at the book of Romans, we look throughout Scripture, there's this common theme that we'll see here in Leviticus as well, that before Christ we are sinners who are lost and far from Him, left to our own devices, and we'll continue to pursue and choose sin. That's the reason that God is so concerned about the holiness of His people, that you and I are sinful people who are not perfect yet, and we will fail. That though we are believers, we will still fall short of the glory of God. That I would submit to you that if anyone would claim that they are perfect, please raise your hand. No one is going to dare raise their hand because we recognize our own failings and shortcomings. In fact, if you continue to read through Romans chapter 1, you'll see this argument that Paul builds out about human sinfulness. And you'll see and recognize that we are blinded by our own sin and we're incapable of recognizing how sinful we truly are. A fun uh, exercise, if we will, is to just ask this question. Are you quick to call out other people's sins? None of you are going to answer this, but the answer is yes, we are. We're very quick to call out the sins of others. How dare they live like that? Who do they think they are? Don't they know that that's wrong? 
but we're very slow to call out our own sin. Oh, I know I shouldn't do that, but it's been a hard week. Oh, I know I shouldn't act this way, but it's just who I am. Do you hear the difference in those two arguments? We want to be prosecutors of others, but not of our own hearts. And what you're going to see throughout the book of Leviticus, why God is so concerned about holiness, is that he recognizes that holiness begins with a real and true understanding of human sin. Holiness begins with a real and true understanding of human sin. We cannot be holy if we're living and running with sin. You cannot be holy if you are living and running with sin. If there is sin in your life, you cannot cry out that you are holy. Holiness requires that we actively fight against sin, that we strive to kill and destroy sin in our lives so that we may be found righteous in the Lord. You see, as we study this book, we're going to see how to do that through this book. We're going to learn what it is that we're to do in our lives to kill sin and to pursue, to intentionally choose holiness and righteousness before the Lord. You see, that's why we're looking in the book of Leviticus is because we, Pastor Brian and I, are concerned about our own personal holiness as people of God. We're concerned about your holiness as not only people of God, but members of our faith family. We're concerned about the holiness of those that don't even attend our church, but are faith family members of another church. That we are seriously concerned about just what is happening in the midst of our lives. And we want to address this reality that you do not stumble into holiness. You make an intentional choice to choose holiness. And so as we look at this book over the next few months, our hope and our prayer is that you will look and study and choose to pursue holiness. Now, this whole idea of pursuing and choosing holiness, this begins with a gospel call. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 reads, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are called to a personal saving faith that inaugurates us into the kingdom of God. That this pursuit of holiness only begins when we've been brought into the kingdom of God. It begins with the grace of God interjecting itself into our lives, softening our hearts so that we would be receptive to the gospel message. It then requires us to place our trust in the Lord as our personal Lord and Savior. Emphasis on the and, Lord and Savior. You see, God's people in Exodus made much of Him as a Savior, but failed to trust Him many times throughout the book as their Lord. And what I mean by that is they acknowledge his, his ability to save them, to rescue them. All we have to do is look back at moments like the Red Sea, right? Again, if you're a biblical, if you're a biblical student, if you've read through this, you recognize the Red Sea account. God's people are up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies are pursuing them. And they look, at, they look over at Moses and they cry out, Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? And God then opens and parts the Red Sea for them to go through. And as they go through, they all make it through. And as Pharaoh's army sweeps in, he crashes the waters together, wiping out Pharaoh and his armies. And immediately after that, God's people worship and they celebrate, what a great Savior we have! How worthy is He of honor and glory! And then just a few short chapters later, in, verse 32, in chapter 32 of Exodus, they create this golden calf because Moses took a little bit too long to come down from the mountain with some words from the Lord. You see, they're coming off this high of salvation at the Red Sea, yet they quickly fall into sin. The people of Exodus, and, and really for, for us, this is the same pattern that we fall into. We're quick to make much of God's worthiness to save us from situations, to change our hearts, to change our attitudes, to pull us out of difficult and messy situations. Yet that same cry out of Him being a great and worthy Savior doesn't always lead us to cry out that He's a great and worthy Lord because we tend to lead ourselves into disobedience of His Word just as God's people did here in Exodus. You see, this continual pattern we see through Scripture and we see this in our own lives that human condition, human sin leads us to this mountaintop experience of God is worthy to save us and redeem us and we're grateful for all that He's done. 
And then we fall into sin and we end up in the valley of despair. Woe is me, I need a Savior. Can anyone rescue me from this wretched state? And then we go back to the mountaintop. Because God is worthy and is a great Savior and He's redeemed us yet again. To live that way in this period of sharp highs and lows, that's not how God intended His people to live. God intended us to live in this slope, a gradual upward slope of becoming more like Him. That we shouldn't have the highs and lows, but there should still be consistent movement towards Him. That we shouldn't live for the mountaintop experience, but rather we should live for the standard slopes and valleys. The truth is that holiness is not achievable on our own power. Holiness is only achievable under this saving grace that God's providing us. This saving grace that changes the human heart, that causes us to fall passionately in love with Him and His Word, that causes us to pursue a unique way of living. You see, here in 2 Thessalonians, this is the glory of the Lord Jesus that Paul refers to. This glory of the Lord, he's referring to this holiness that is found in Christ. Remember, we have to keep in mind, holiness is not perfection. Holiness is not perfection. You and I, as we live on this earth, we will not be perfect in this life. When we die and we ascend into heaven and we stand before the Lord and we have the new heavens and new earth be inaugurated, we have our new heavenly bodies, perfection is found there. But holiness is not the pursuit of perfection. It is the intentional pursuit of living more like Christ each and every day. I want to put realistic targets on the wall for us to recognize what it is we're striving to do. Because if your mindset is that holiness means I am perfect and I do no wrong, you're going to fail. You're never going to reach holiness if that's your standard. And I would submit to you that that's an unchristlike and unbiblical standard. That you and I, we know we're not perfect. You, we know we're sinful people. And therefore, we must pursue this pattern of living more like Christ each and every day. That the true measure of holiness is that I can look back at the time I became a believer and the who I am now and see that there is a clear and distinct difference in the way I've lived and acted. That I look back two years, three years, five years and say that I am not the same man I was then because God has shaped and changed things in me. That the true measure of holiness is that over the course of years I will say I am more like Christ today than I was X number of years or months ago. The truth is that we are not without sin in this but we are fighting for righteousness we're fighting for the righteousness of Christ each and every day. And so as we look at this entire book as a whole, we're seeing that God calls out to His people. We see that He calls out to His people to live in this clear and distinctive way. And that leads us to the second idea we have to address. Who are His people? Who are the people of God? You see, we see that God is calling His people to live in this specific way. And he's saying that you must live in a way that is holy and pleasing. And we have to recognize that all people have received this gospel call. All people have received this gospel invitation from the Lord. But not all people have responded. That is that the gospel is accessible to everybody. But not everybody has trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, God's people are those that have trusted in Jesus and been set apart for His glory. That is a clear and distinct separate group. People that have trusted in Christ and been set apart from His glory. You see, we're going to see some of this in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. This continuation of some of the words of Moses here. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, this verse makes quite clear in the words of the Lord to His chosen people that we are set apart from God, set apart by God to be a holy people. That we're to live in a different or distinctive manner from others. 
You see, chapter 14 of Deuteronomy is an interesting chapter because in that, as much of Deuteronomy is, he's giving some very clear commands on how to live. And in chapter 14, he says, here are some things you should do. Here are some things you should not do. This is what is expected of his people. And the fundamental truth of it is, as we look at that, is that he's calling us to live and act in a certain way, particularly speaking to the people of Deuteronomy, because the people that are around them live in a certain sinful way. When he says things like, do not eat of these unclean animals, when he says that you're to wear this, you're to dress like this, you're to have your hair cut like this, he's creating a separation from those lost pagan people around them. Not that he does not care for those people, but what he's doing, he's saying, you'll live in such a way that all the people around you will go, they're different. They're unique. They're not like the rest of us. And then on top of that, you'll actually worship in a way that is clearly distinctively different than the way the rest of them worship. Oh, these people practice human sacrifice. Well, you'll sacrifice oxen. These people over here worship these many gods. You'll worship one God, that is I, your Lord God Almighty. That there are clear patterns of living and worship that are distinct from the rest of the world around them. And the intention behind that is that God is establishing that you are a unique, holy people. That is not to say that some of these things are bad. We see as we get into the New Testament that he speaks to Peter and say, Hey, those things that I said were unclean that you couldn't eat, that's no longer an issue. Why? Because that's no longer the dividing line. Because the people have intermingled and there's no longer an issue there. I don't have to establish this barrier of you don't eat these certain animals to separate you from those that are far from God. Here in the Old Testament, we see that he's establishing that, though, for the good of his people. Now, as we look at that, we recognize that there are some things we're not going to do today, right? We're still going to eat pork because pig is good. Just We're all on the same page there. Uh, we can trim the corners of our beard. Uh, that we don't have to wear the cute little yarmulkes, right? Like th Those are things that we don't have to do because we are living on this side of the New Testament Scriptures. Yet, the fundamental truth, the underlying assumption in there that God is putting before us is that we're to live in a manner that is different than those that are far from God. Though we may not abstain from pork anymore, we're going to abstain from sinful desires. Though we may not trim our beards in a certain way, we will live in a certain way that brings honor and glory to the Lord that is different than those that are far from Him. You see, the truths are still applicable, though we apply them in a different way today. And so as we look at specifically this verse and God speaking to His people, He's showing us that we are set apart by God to be a holy and unique people. Now we also see in this verse that we are chosen by God. It is true that we do have an action within the salvation process that is not just God plucking us to and fro, that there requires us to trust and repent of our sins in this, that we must repent and believe, that we must follow God, we must repent and believe, and this follows God moving on our hearts so that we may clearly see our sinful ways. As you remember back in Romans 1, it talks about we are lost, we are blind, we are in despair. And God in His mercy comes in, changes our heart, softens our heart, so that as we hear the beauty and power of the gospel, we repent and believe. That He moves and we respond. You see, we've been chosen by God to be His children. Look with me very briefly over to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. You see, God has called us from darkness into light. Not for anything that we've done, not because we're incredible people or will do great things, but because He is good and holy. And He chooses to call out to people who are lost in the darkness and calls them to come to Him. You see, we've been adopted as children of God by His free and sovereign grace. He chose to call out to us. And we get the joy of responding to that beautiful call of salvation. Now we also see as a closing thought in some respects from the writer of Deuteronomy that we're a treasured possession. 
We're a treasured possession. Now this can seem like perhaps God is just gathering things together for His pleasure, right? That He's just gathering this great collection so He can show off, look at all these beautiful people I have. And it could, it could read that way if you're not diving into the text, perhaps. But rather, the proper way to look at this is to recognize that we are His treasure possession. What that means is we are like the crown jewels of the kingdom. If you go back to the creation story, He creates the heavens and the earth, and He goes through several days of creation, creating all these beautiful things. The, the stars and the sky, He creates the, the land and the seas, He creates all these incredible animals. And when does He say creation is good? When He's created mankind. You see, we are the crown jewels before the Lord God. He said, creation was not good until I created them. And now that man is here, creation is good because it is pleasing to me to have these people who are in my image worshiping and growing with me. You see, God loved you and I so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. This is a type of love that you and I truly can't fathom. We would not dare offer up our children for the sins of anyone, including our own. And the truth of it is, is that God Himself sent His Son Jesus to die in our place so that through Him, He could adopt many more sons and daughters. You see, this is love that He would give of Himself to you and I. That He would pay a debt of sin that He had no responsibility to pay. That He would freely give of His Son, Jesus, so that He could call you and I His adopted children. Not only that, are we His adopted children, we are not of lesser status, that we are co-heirs with Christ. That He does not look upon Christ and then us, He looks upon Christ and us as co-equals, co-heirs in this inheritance. He has said, all that I have offered and given to Christ, I offer and give to you. You're not getting shortchanged. I'm not holding anything back. Everything I have, every ounce of love and kindness and concern that I would give to my son Jesus, I will give to you as well. That is what it means to be a treasured possession. That is what it means to be his chosen holy people. That you are loved by a God who shows his love in such a way that he would give all he has to have you and I. That is what it means to be his people. And that's why he calls his people to holiness. That's why he calls us to holiness. If you had given all you had for this one task, would you not be concerned about how it would end? Would you not strive to ensure that your, your sacrifice was fulfilled and worthy? You see, the last point we'll look at is that we're called to holiness. The entire book that we're studying is centered around this idea of holiness. That yes, this book will address both God's holiness and ours. In fact, Leviticus 19.2 gives this command to us from God. And it reads, it's not going to be on the screen, but it reads, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. And say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is on the screen. Caitlin's incredible. He says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy and righteous. And he desires for his people to be the same. That He has called His people to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 1 builds upon this idea of holiness. It reads, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I know we've just looked at one verse out of context, and we need to get some context, right? He says, since we have these promises, what are these promises? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we get some thoughts from Paul on the grace of God. 
that he begins that chapter just talking about the grace that God has showered upon us, how good the Lord is to send his son to die on a sinful people's behalf, how his grace is sufficient to cleanse all, to cleanse all of their sin and shame. And it ends that chapter with this idea that we are a temple of the living God. And that's perhaps appropriate because we're looking at this initial temple, this tent of meeting here in Leviticus. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul quotes several sections of Leviticus 26 specifically as he's building his argument out on why we're a living temple of the Lord. If I can summarize what he's saying and what he's trying to get us to see here in this verse and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, since we know the grace of God is sufficient for all of our sins, right? We know we can rest in the fact that the grace of God is sufficient for all of our sins. And we know that if we're believers, we are a temple for the Spirit of God. If God's Spirit dwells inside of us, then we should be moved to action. This action is what we see in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. This action is to pursue a cleansing in our body and spirit. That we're to pursue an intentional removing of sin within our lives and become more like Christ. Now you might be asking, what does this look like, right? Like, What, what does this look like, this cleansing of sin in our lives? What does it look like to remove sin within our lives? Well, as I've said, we're going we're gonna to have a whole book study about that. That's what the entire book of Leviticus is about. But there are some initial thoughts we see as we kind of study the book of Leviticus. Two main components that we think about removing sin within our lives. The first is that we turn away from sin through repentance and abstinence. You see, we must seek forgiveness from God by the realization of the nature of our sin. We've fallen short of the glory of God, and there's repentance to be offered and grace to be found. That's why this sacrificial system was established, right? This sacrificial system was established so that there may be payment for our sins. And yes, I know we live in New Testament times and Christ has paid that debt, but we still need to cry out to the God who carries the weight of that debt and cry out for forgiveness and mercy. That we must turn away from our ways of sin and we must look to Christ and live for Him. Now we also need to pursue abstinence from these sins. And what I mean by that is I'll just read Romans uh, chapter, chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 and that, that says enough about what this means. But it reads, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? If you're going to pursue holiness, you must fight to stay away from sin. That if you're going to pursue holiness, you must fight to stay away from sin. This means intentional, specific ways of living that would separate you from sinful actions and thoughts. This means that you're going to intentionally, specifically choose to protect your heart and your mind from these things. What this requires is that you are going to choose to live a life that is holy and righteous and pleasing to the Lord. That you're going to choose to turn away from those sinful things and choose the grace of Christ. And so the first thing we must do is to pursue repentance and abstinence. Now, a second thing that we're going to see throughout the book of Leviticus is that we must saturate our life with the power of the gospel. You see, as we study the book of Leviticus, it can be broken in half, really. The first half of the book is talking about, here's how you're to worship, right? The first 16 chapters or so are about, here's how you worship. Here's how you bring honor and glory to the Lord through these offerings, through these sacrifices. Here is how you come before me. The repentance and abstinence, we just talked about that. The second half of the book is then focusing on, here is how you live. Here's how you worship, but here's how you live on a day-to-day basis in a way that brings holiness into your life. Here's how you live in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord God Almighty. Here's how you live so that your life is saturated with the power of the gospel. Now, in practical terms, what does that look like? 
Well, I think for us it means that we should be students of the Word. That we should read, read, read the Word of the Lord. You know, we did the Bible reading plan last year where we read through the Bible in a year. And quick show of hands, how many of you completed that entire reading plan? I don't ask that to bring any kind of shame or condemnation because it's not the point of this. But what I can put money on is that the times where you are most in the Word of the Lord, where you're consistently reading and studying, were probably the times you felt the best about your spiritual growth and condition. Am I right? The times when you're in the Word the most is the times that you felt you were growing and thriving the most in the Lord. And if that's indeed the case, the only answer to how do I grow and thrive in the Lord, how do I saturate my life with the power of the Gospel, is to read, read, read the Word of the Lord. It's to study. It's to use those words of Scripture to saturate your hearts and minds with the power of the gospel. It means you're here on Sundays, whether it's in person or online. You're gathering with the saints, with the body of Christ, to be encouraged by the singing of the gospel, by the proclamation of the gospel and the study of God's word. It means the commitment to being fed and to being encouraged. It means you're listening to other sermons. I think Brian and I are pretty good preachers, but there are a lot of better ones out there too. It's true. And the reality of it is that if you're just listening to us, well, you need to be fed a little bit more than that. You need to go pursue other people to listen to as well. Perhaps one of the local pastors of a church we're partnered with Perhaps there's someone that you are enjoying listening to. I know many of you like someone like David Jeremiah or other people like that. Those are great people to listen to. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that, yes, we proclaim the gospel. Yes, we strive to put the gospel on display. But I know that my 30 to 40 minute sermon is not enough to feed you during the course of this week. And you need to be fed elsewhere. You must have gospel saturation in your life. And that's going to come by pursuing outside sources in addition to reading and studying the Word. You see, what we're trying to do, what we're striving to do here, is we're trying to create a specific type of soil in your heart. I grew up on a farm, and one of the things we do every planting season is there is a specific amount of fertilizer and nutrients we put in the soil to ensure that the crops we're placing in these fields grow properly. Different crops require a different mix of nutrients, right? This was a very detailed, specific process of we need to do X, Y, and Z to ensure we get A, B, and C results. And what I'm trying to tell you right now is that if you do these things, you'll create a soil in your heart that is fertile for the power and the roots of the gospel to sink deep and to take hold of your life and to transform who you are. We're trying to create a soil that is unkind to sin and shame. That sin cannot take root in it because it doesn't have the right stuff for it to grab hold of. That we're creating a soil that only the Spirit of the Lord can move and work in. And that comes through living and saturating our life in such a way that we are full of the power and majesty of God. You see, that's what the second half of Leviticus is about. How do we live in such a way that we can let God do His work that only He can do in our lives unhindered? And our part on that is to study and thrive in the Word, to get out of our own way so the Lord can move and do a mighty work. Paul finishes this verse with some remarks that are almost as a side that will bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. You see, this fear of God is rooted in His great power and majesty. There are many ways to try and understand what this fear of the Lord looks like, yet I think one of the, the best illustrations I've seen of this comes from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
If you're not familiar with this story, it's a, it's a good book you should read. But in this story, we have a beaver here, Mr. Beaver, who's with the main characters of the story. And one of the characters is a young woman who is named Susan. And Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. And she's shocked. She's surprised because she assumed that Aslan was a man. And she then tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. You see, the fear of the Lord is not about keeping our distance from God, but about drawing near to Him. And you see, as we study the book of Leviticus, what we're going to see, in order to keep a proper perspective on holiness, on growing to be more like Christ in the fear of the Lord, it is because we draw closer to Him that we repent of our sin, we abstain from sin, we saturate our lives with the power of the gospel and draw near to Him. As our band begins to come back up, this is a time where you will draw near to the Lord. We'll have a time of quiet reflection and prayer where I will shut up for a few minutes and you're thinking in relief, yes, I'll be quiet for a few minutes for you to draw near to the Lord on your own. And whatever it is that He's telling you, whatever it is He's doing in your life, this is an opportunity for you to cry out to Him. If you're here and you're a believer, your response is to draw near to the Lord and say, forgive me of my sin and inadequacies and fill me with your Spirit. Saturate my heart and mind with the power of the gospel so that I may live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which I've been called. That if you're here and you say that you're not a believer or you're just not sure about your eternal status, your response is to also draw near to God and to cry out that I need forgiveness of my sin. That you're to go forth and you're to repent Repentance is a military turn. It means turn away, do a 180. You're going this direction towards sin and death. You're to turn around and go towards Christ. And so today you get to turn around and draw near to the Lord and repent of your sin. Confess your sin and shame and cry out to God Himself and receive forgiveness. The scriptures tell us that there is a prayer that God will always answer when it is called out to Him, when it's cried out. And that prayer is a prayer of salvation. You see, God, when He is listening to the prayers of people throughout the world, there are many that He does not answer. And if we're honest, we recognize He doesn't always answer our prayers with answers. But the one prayer that he always comes through as we study scripture that we see that he answers is a prayer crying out for forgiveness and mercy. No sin is too big, no shame is too great to separate you from the goodness and grace of God. And so today you get to cross that gap because of what Jesus has done for you and draw near to the Lord and receive forgiveness. And so here in the next few moments, we'll have a time of silent prayer and reflection for you and I to go to the Father ourselves. I'll close us with a few words of prayer. And then our band will lead us in a time of worship as we rejoice and celebrate of the life we have in Christ. And my hope and prayer is that for those of you who don't trust Christ, whether you're here, you're watching online, this will be a time of trusting in Him, of turning away from your sin and shame, and following the Lord forever. After that, if you guys want to speak to myself or Pastor Brian, we're here. We'd love to hear what God's doing in your life. If you're watching online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact, and we'll follow up with you from there to hear about what God is doing. If I may, could I lead us in a time of prayer? Would you bow your heads with me?
Father, we come before you today as people who are aware of our own sins and shortcomings. As we begin this year of 2021, this is a time of, of new, new change, of new ways of living, of resolutions and goals, of striving to be better people. And Father, I pray that we would put all of that aside, that we would say these tangible things that we would measure within our own lives of being better or the best version of ourselves, they're useless because they're not built upon you. Father, may our standard for 2021 be that of holiness. May we pursue, intentionally pursue, holiness. May we choose to be like you, Father, and follow in your footsteps day after day. For those that are here that are believers that have trusted in you some time ago, Father, would you show us, would you open our hearts to the work you're doing? Would you let us see the power of the gospel? Would you allow us to repent of our sin and shame, to turn away from those things, and to continue to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you? May we truly trust and believe that we are called to be holy because you, Lord God, are holy. Father, for those who are here or watching online or, or anything like that who are listening to these words, that perhaps they find that they are not believers or they're just not sure about their status before you, Father. May you reveal their sin to them. May you show them that their standards of living, whatever it is they're using to evaluate their lives and say they're comfortable with it, are false idols. They're nothing. They're meaningless. May they see that before you, the only thing that matters is are they found to be righteous and holy like you? And the truth of it is that the only way to be found holy and righteousness like you is to trust in you and repent of their sins. So Father, would you bring repentance to the people who are here, who are listening, who are hearing these words. May they cry out to you and repent of their sin and turn away from their sinful actions and thoughts and trust in you, Lord. May they be inaugurated into the kingdom as adopted children of the Most High God, and walk with you the rest of their days. Father, we are thankful for your grace and mercy. And we rest in the confidence and assurance that your mercy is more. That it has never failed us. It will never fall short. And that it will always see its purpose through to the end. So Father, we're grateful for you. We're thankful for the things you're doing. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.